Romans chapter 11. We come here to Romans chapter 11 to a very important chapter in, uh, in your end time, in, in eschatology, which means your end times. Uh, one of the questions that becomes apparent as you read the Bible and you study through the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see the Old Testament is all about the Jewish people, the New Testament, this Jewish people are kind of morphing or becoming the church, some of them that are believers on Jesus Christ. And the question becomes, what happened to the Jewish people? What has God done? Has God forsaken his promises to the Jewish people? Has God replaced the Jewish, the Israel with the church? Where you fall in, in, in Romans chapter 11 is going to shape how you see the book of Revelation. It's going to shape how you see the book of Daniel when it comes to end times. If you have never studied Romans chapter 11, you're probably not going to understand the chronological logical order of the book of Revelation, if you've ever been there. And what we find as we study the scriptures, it's so important to take it as a whole and see how it all fits together. And, and it all has to fit together for that reason. In chapter 9, we saw God's sovereign election of the nation Israel. God chose the nation of Israel. He established a unique and a special relationship with the nation of Israel. That relationship was different than he had with any other people group, any other culture before them or even after them. It's, it's a very special relationship. In chapter 10, we saw the nation Israel reject the Messiah. We saw them not accept Christ, but instead they, re they rejected him, they crucified him. Although they had the law, they had the miracles, they had this special relationship with God. They had a desire to be righteous before God. They wanted the things of God. They were zealous for the things of God, but they didn't want to come to God based on faith in the Messiah, based on faith in Jesus Christ. They rejected God's way of righteousness, the way he laid it out for them, which was by faith in Jesus Christ. But we'll also see that this is all part of God's plan. God knew this would take place. It was all part of his way of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember the Gentiles? That's those people who aren't Jewish. So if you're not Jewish here this morning, you're considered a Gentile. And because the Jews rejected the Messiah, the gospel was now gone out to the Gentiles. As we come to chapter 11, we're going to be looking at the future of Israel. What, what, what happens to Israel now? Is God done with them? Has he replaced Israel with the church? He's going to, we're going to be looking at that whole, whole uh, dynamic of if God's done with Israel and the church, then what happens to all of his promises? What happens to all that stuff? And uh, it becomes a very, very important question. And I'm going to just make sure you understand it. Is God done with the nation of Israel? Has he replaced the nation of Israel with the church? This question is so important and it's so valid that we understand it. The way that you answer this question is going to shape what you believe about end times. The way that you look at the events in, in, in Revelation, the way that you look at the events in Daniel chapter 9, all of the end time things are going to be whether or not you believe God is done with the nation Israel. If you do believe that God has finished with the nation Israel and the church has taken the place of Israel and the promises of Israel in the Old Testament are now all just given over to the church, if that's where you fall, you believe in what's called replacement theology and essentially the church has replaced Israel. That's what you would believe. It's sometimes it's called supersessionism. It's like the church has superseded Israel in all the promises of God. Simply put, the church takes the place of Israel. So God would be done with the nation Israel. And now the church is the one that God is focusing on. Reformed theology, John Calvin is all linked very closely related to that. Now, I must tell you, I want to be very clear. I do not believe in replacement theology. 
I do not believe that God is done with the nation Israel. I believe God has always had a plan for the nation Israel, and he's not done with them. And you will see why as we study through uh, Romans chapter 11. God is going to use the rejection of, their, of the Messiah to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but we will see that, he, that it's, 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 it's not complete. He's going, to, he's going to begin work on the nation Israel again in the future. As we look at Romans chapter 11, you can decide that question for yourself, but I think it'd be rather clear. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? That's the nation Israel. Certainly not. The word cast away, it means to push aside. It means to reject. It means to thrust away. Has God forsaken the nation Israel for their rejection of their Messiah? Paul says no. Certainly not. As a matter of fact, it's emphatic. Absolutely not. But let's take a look at the few verses from the Old Testament just to kind of prove this point. And Paul doesn't use these verses, but I just want to read them to you. Psalm, and we're, again, we're referring to, is God done with Israel? Psalm 94, verse 14 says this, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And after the nation Israel had worshipped idols, they, when they repented, they cried out to God. Psalm 106, verse 44 says this, Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. He heard their cry, and their, for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Psalm 89, verse 31 through 34 says this, If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod. And their iniquities with stripes. And verse 33 says, Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from them or from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word which has gone out of my lips. So the Psalms declare that God is not done with the nation of Israel, and now we're going to watch. As Paul declares it, God will not forsake his people, even when his people forsake him. That's the picture here. That's a good thing. How many times has it happened in your life? How many times have you forsaken God? You've walked away from God. And yet, if you were God, you would have thrown and cast yourself off a long time ago because of the mistakes you've made. But that's not how God is. God doesn't forsake his people, and he's not, he hasn't done it then. He's not going to start doing it now. He will remain faithful even when we are faithful. Less. God will remain faithful even when we are faithless. If he has forsaken Israel, let's just say that he has, what hope does that give us? It means he could forsake us down the road, right? But he hasn't forsaken his people, he hasn't forsaken his promises, and he never will. Paul makes it very clear, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Now we could stop right there and I think we would have the answer to our question, but Paul's going to spend the rest of chapter 11 driving that point home to us. And he says this, he's going to give us two ways. Paul's going to say, he says, I want you to look at what the Old Testament says. And then Paul is going to say, I want you to look at my own personal testimony. Look at me, look who I am. Look at the little, latter part of verse 1. Paul says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So the first part of the foundation of Paul's argument that God has not rejected Israel is he says what? I'm Jewish. I'm a, I, I'm a Jewish believer. I'm the one writing you the letter. Paul says, I'm Jewish. I'm a Christian. I'm the one writing this to you. If you think God's done with Israel, look who's the author of this letter. 
Paul would say. I'm the one doing it. And by the way, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. I persecuted the early church. I was zealous. I held the coats as Stephen was, was martyred for his faith. I understand all of this, Paul would say, and I have been saved by the grace of God. Paul's faith in Jesus as the Messiah proved that there were some Jews who were chosen by God to embrace the gospel. He is, very, he is one of them. The second part of his argument, though, for God not being finished with Israel, is seen in God's sovereignty by the, Lord, by the way the Lord always maintains a remnant. He always maintains a small group of people, a small group of people who have not forsaken the Lord. He always does that. And we see that Paul's going to point back to an area that we studied on Thursday nights uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Look at verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says? I like when it says that. That's Paul taking his argument back to the Bible. That's where Paul's going, listen, I'm, I'm done with my opinions here. You can, my, my testimony of my life will speak for it. And now I'm going to go tell you what the scripture says. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant, meaning in Israel, to the election of grace. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Although, although the nation as a whole had rejected Christ as the Messiah, Paul is saying there is still a remnant there. By the way, foreknew, it means before, to know beforehand to know before the beginning of time. God knew that this would take place. Again, don't make the mistake of thinking God was up in heaven going, oh no, the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Now what do I do? He foreknew it. He knew it was coming. It was, it was part of his plan for it to happen this way. Paul, as he moves into this principle of the idea of a remnant, he goes back to uh, Elijah. He goes back to Elijah, even though many have rejected Christ, many of the Jews have been accepting, accepting Christ, and Paul goes back to Elijah to show that, hey, there was a remnant then, that was the way God was working then, and God's going to be doing it that same thing now. And he turned, and, and the passage he's referring to is 1 Kings chapter 19, when the Elijah was the prophet of Israel, all of Israel, it appeared, had forsaken God. Remember the story of Elijah? He had gone to the Lord, and the Lord had told him to go to King Ahab. King Ahab was an evil king, and he told King Ahab there'd be no rain for, until, he, until he said so. And, and then he, he took off on the run, and there was a drought in Israel for, for three and a half years. And then Elijah goes back to King Ahab, and Ahab calls him a troubler of Israel. And Elijah calls King Ahab out on it. And then Elijah calls for a, a showdown or, 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 a, or a competition, if you will, between his God and between the gods of Baal. And he gathers all the prophets of Baal. Gather, he tells Ahab, go get all the 400 prophets of Baal and meet us on Mount Carmel. Carmel, and we'll build, we'll build two altars there, and we'll see which God calls down fire from heaven. We'll see which God brings fire down from heaven, and whichever God brings down fire from heaven, that will be the, the one true God, the living God. And they did. They went up to Mount Carmel, and they built the, the altar, and, and, and Elijah let the other side go first. Go ahead, Baal. Go ahead, Ahab. You and the prophets of Baal, you, go, you guys go ahead. You build your altar first, which, which was a big step, by the way, because what if, what if their altar had caught fire? It's kind of like a sudden death match, if you will. There was no more, there was no, there was no, well, I get to go to tie it up. You know, it doesn't work that way. So the prophets of Baal, they're all up there. And we, and we read the story. We studied it just a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night. And they're, they're chanting and they're cutting themselves. And Elijah begins to taunt them. 
He says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's gone away for a while. Maybe you have to yell louder. And it gets louder and louder. And then finally, Elijah rebuilds his altar. And he pours water all over the altar to make sure. And he prays to God. And what happens? Fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the altar. And it licks up the water. And it, and, and it, it, it proves that, God, that, that his God, the God the, uh, Elijah's God, is the God, is the one true and living God. And Elijah ends up slaying all the prophets of Baal. He kills them all, takes them down to the brook there and kills them all. And uh, he thought that uh, Ahab and Jezebel would turn, but it doesn't work out that way. What happened when Ahab goes and tells Jezebel what took place? Jezebel says, well, you send word to Elijah that he's going to be dead by tomorrow. The gods do so to me also if he's not like one of the prophets of Baal tomorrow. So what does Elijah do? He takes off running. He takes off running, and he's running through the wilderness, and he's running from God, and he finally finds himself a couple of hundred miles away, and he's in a cave. And the Lord appears to him in a cave. And what does Elijah say to the Lord? The Lord says to Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah, and I always picture it in this poor whiny voice, he says this, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I'm the only one left, Lord, and they seek to kill me, and now they seek to take my life. I'm the only one, Lord, and the Lord says, Elijah, get up. Go. I've got work for you to do. I've got people for you to anoint. I've got things for you to do. Get out of the cave and go. Your time is over. And so he goes, and just before he goes, the Lord says, oh, by the way, Elijah, I want to tell you something. You're not the only one. I've reserved 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal. You think you're the only one. That's the way it always is. We think we're the only one in life, right? I'm the only one, I'm the only one this kind of stuff happens to. Elijah says no. Or God says to Elijah, i got 7,000 people in Israel. You think you're the only one. There are 7,000 people who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Paul uses this very place in scripture where he says listen there's a remnant and he's using the same remnant principle right here as he says he as he's as he's uh, proving that God is not done with Israel even now there's a remnant in Israel and Paul says I am part of that remnant is there a remnant in Israel today absolutely they're known as messianic Jews there's there's a whole Jewish population a whole Jewish group they're, they're called messianic Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ they're part of the remnant that exists today it's, they're amazing people if you get to talk to them because they have the culture and the history of Judaism, but they believe on Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it's wonderful when you get to talk to them. And they piece it all together. And they're able to take the Old Testament feasts and all the things of the Old Testament. And they show you how they all point to Christ and how they point to the New Testament. It's an amazing opportunity. So Paul is saying there's a remnant now. And he, he knows that God is so sovereign and faithful that he knows how to get his people to do what they need to do or what he needs them to do, and go where he wants them to go. Now look at verse 5. Even so, then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise grace is no longer grace, but it is of works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. You go, what? What's he talking about? Listen, it's real simple. Paul just wants to drive home the point that the remnant is by faith it's by the grace of god in jesus by the faith in jesus christ it's not by their works because if it was by their works then you can't have works and grace great great works works don't produce grace grace is something that is given that you don't deserve it's not given to you because uh because of something inside of you it's something that is freely given to you that you have no right to claim you can't say i earned that when you get your paycheck at the end of the week it's not grace you earned your paycheck 
You, you, I want what's what I'm entitled to. When God gives us grace, you haven't earned that. It's something he's freely giving to you. But you have to certainly accept that. When you accept the grace of God, when you see that your salvation is by grace, that will produce the works in you. It's because I have salvation by grace that now I have a desire to do the works in me. I don't do the works of God so I can have grace and be in right standing. It's when I realize, wait a minute, God has saved me. God, in spite of who I am, in spite of what my mind thinks, in spite of what I've done in my past, in spite of what you've done in your past, you can be saved by grace and it's, you don't get righteousness by the works. Whenever you think that you're not worthy or you're not good enough or you haven't, someday you'll get ready, that doesn't work that way. That's works. When, when, when you're putting it back on you to earn that, God says, I want to save you by faith in my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to believe on him, that he died for your sins. And all of those sins, both past, present, and future, are all, are all paid for. They're, they're not, they're not going to be counted against you. And when you realize, and you realize the depth of that, you go, Lord, what can, what, what can I do? And Paul will tell us what we can do in chapter 12, but that'll be next week. So he says uh, in verse 7, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. If God is finished with the nation Israel and the remnant have accepted Christ based on grace, what happened to those who rejected Christ? What's going on with them? Those who accepted Christ became Christians, but what about the rest of the Jewish people? What about them? What's going on with them? Paul says Israel has not obtained what it was looking for. It was looking for righteousness, but it was righteousness based on living out the law, based on carrying out the law. That's what they were trying to get. The Gentiles have obtained righteousness. But they didn't do it the same way. It wasn't by works. It was by faith in Jesus Christ. So what happened to the rest of them? Look at verse 8. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. That means not being able to think right. Not being able to process things right. That's what it means. Your mind does you can't put it together. Even that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. This is why when you look at Jewish people and you wonder, how come they don't see it now? How come they can't pick up this book, read through the Bible and go, now I've got it. It makes sense because their eyes have been blinded to it. They, they, because it, their eyes are shut to it. Their eyes, they, they, they can't see it. I have a friend of mine. I haven't talked to him in years. He was a very good friend at one point. He's a Jewish guy. South, when I lived in South Florida, there was a lot of Jewish population. He picked up the Bible one day and started reading it and got saved. Grew up his whole life Jewish, picked up, started reading, I can't believe what all, I couldn't, he couldn't put it down, what was in it. He got saved, he started ministering to all of his family, and his, you, you guys aren't going to believe it. Most of them didn't understand it, they didn't want it, they, they, didn't, they didn't follow it, they didn't catch it. He was part of the remnant, he got saved. Going on in verse 9, and Paul turns to David, and he says, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. In other words, they've become callous, they've become hardened, and God and his sovereignty have made it this way so that they don't understand. Well, why would God do that? Why, why would he do that? Keep reading, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, did they stumble that they would fall away from God forever or permanently? Certainly not. Certainly not. Then why did they stumble? Why, why is Paul telling us, what's the purpose for this, Paul? Verse 11 again, I say that they have stumbled, they should fall, certainly not. But through their fall, this is why, 
This is why God has allowed it to happen to them. Through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's us. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be when they actually believe on Jesus Christ? In other words, let me explain it to you simply. Paul's saying the stumbling of the Jews, their failure has brought salvation to the Gentiles. Their failure has brought salvation to the Gentiles. God has allowed this. Part of, it, part of doing this was to use the Gentile believers to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. In other words, they were supposed to look at the Gentile relationship with God. And they were supposed to see all that they desired in that. They were supposed to look and go, wow, that's what I want. That's the relationship I want with God. Can I I get that? How has the church done it that throughout history? How have we done it representing Christ, the church? One commentator wrote this, and I tell you we haven't done very well. One commentator wrote this. He said, it is a matter of profound regret that just as Israel refused to accept this salvation when it was offered to them, So the Gentiles have all too often refused to make Israel envious. Instead of showing God's ancient people the attractiveness of the Christian way, Christians have characteristically treated the Jews with hatred, prejudice, persecution, malice, and all uncharitableness. Christians should not take this passage calmly. People often ask, why do we care about the Jewish people? Why do we care about the Old Testament? If you're a new believer, I understand that question. But if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, have you not read your Bible? Have you not read how much of the New Testament is the Old Testament? Have you not read how special the Jewish people are to God? Does it not break your heart that right now as Jewish people are dying and don't know Christ, they're going to hell? And you say, well, God made it that way. No, they still have a right to choose just like you and I do. The the, the right to choose is still there for them, but they can't understand it that way. God's done this so that he will bring us, bring Gentiles into the fullness. If their failure has brought the gospel to the Gentiles, think of what will happen when they accept Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, it's riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, what Paul's saying If this stumble from the Jewish people has brought salvation to you, to the Gentiles, and to the world, can you imagine what it's going to bring to the world when they actually accept Christ as their Messiah? Can you imagine what what glory is going to be brought about that? How, How glorious it will be when God's chosen people finally have their eyes open to Christ as the Messiah? And it's coming. It'll it'll happen. We read about it in the book of Revelation. Now Before we get too haughty or too prideful and thinking we're all that, Paul wants to set the Gentiles straight. Look what he says in verse 13. For I speak to you, Gentiles, that's you and I, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. That's the Jewish people. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, 
That's the Gentiles. You were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul tells the Gentiles a few things. He says, number one, I make it my ministry. To, I, 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 magna, I make it my ministry to magnify my ministry. I want to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. I want them to see me, and I want them to come to Christ. Remember what he said back in chapter 9? He said, I would give away my salvation if the Jewish people would come to Christ. I would give it away. I'd give it all away. I'd go, I'd, I would spend eternity in hell if my countrymen would accept Christ. That's what he said in the beginning of chapter 9. But then again, he, he repeats what he said earlier. If being cast away brought the rest of the world Christ, just think of how their acceptance will bring life from the dead. Just think of what a glorious day it will be when the Jews finally do come to Christ. Then he talks about first fruits. You guys know what first fruits are from the Old Testament. First fruits, and if you ever plant a garden, you know what the first fruits are, right? What are the first fruits? It's the first fruits that come on the vine. It's the first tomatoes. It's the first, you know, cucumbers. It's the first squash. It's the first zucchini. It's the very first ones that come on the vine. It's the very first ones. The, the first fruits that he's speaking here, some people think he's referring to the patriarchs. I th personally think he's referring to, uh, to the early Christians. The first, the, the first fruits of, of Christianity would be those early apostles, the Christians. What did they bring us? What first fruit, fruits did they bring? They wrote us the majority of the scriptures, the New Testament we have from them. We're, we're thankful for them. They were a good thing for the Gentiles. These first fruits came out of the nation Israel, most of them. They, most of them are Jewish. And they, Jesus was Jewish. How, just think about if, if, that, if, if what we got from the first fruits of that early church is the New Testament and the understanding that Paul's giving us and the, the deep things that he's able to share and teach us. Just think of what we're going to get. Just think of what the harvest is going to be when the Jewish people finally get saved when they finally come to the knowledge in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on, he uses an illustration, the tree is an illustration. He says, it, just to back up a little bit in 16, he says, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Don't boast against those branches that's the ones that were broken off but if you do boast remember that you do not support the root but the root supports you so paul has illustrated this picture the way that it's working is like is, is it's the it's the tree of god it speaks as us gentiles as being wild olive trees being grafted into an existing tree and he reminds us that it, you know, were these branches that have been grafted in, those that had unbelief were cut off and they were, they were taken out. But God is the root is what he's saying. God is the very thing, the very one that we're being grafted into. So we need to make sure that we don't get very prideful. And throughout history, the church has failed to yield to this area of scripture. They've become very prideful, very anti-Semitic. They've become very prideful in, in dealing with the Jewish people. Those Gentiles who were grafted in, that's you and I, those that are believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't boast about it, but remember the work of God and that you're supported by the Lord, you're not supporting him. In a tree, the branches are not the thing that supports the tree, the root is. You can cut off a branch and what happens? Nothing. God is the root. He's the one, that we're, he's the one supporting us. Verse 19, you will say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. 
Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear. It means fear the Lord. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Wow, what does that mean? What caused the branches to be broken off? Unbelief. What caused the branches to be grafted in? Faith. Don't be haughty. Fear the Lord. If they were broken off because of unbelief, it means you could be broken off too. That's what Paul's saying there. You say, wait a minute, Rob. Isn't, doesn't that get into the whole once saved, always saved argument? Can, can we really get there? And I'm not going to go off on that tangent this morning, but I want you to understand there's two sides to that argument. I absolutely 100% believe we can be absolutely secure in our foundation. But I also believe that we have to maintain our connection to that tree, to that vine. I, have to, I believe that we have to do that. Look at verse 22. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But towards you, those that were grafted in, goodness. If you continue in his goodness. What's it say? If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. But they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul stresses the need for us as Gentiles to continue in his goodness. Not in the sense of salvation by works, but by continuing in God's grace and his goodness. A relationship of continual abiding. The way that it works practically is this. We have to abide in Christ. We have to continue in his goodness, Paul is saying. And this idea Jesus spoke about too in the New Testament, didn't he? What did he how did he say it? He said in, in John chapter 15, verse 1, what did he say? I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. A little farther down in five, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. They gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. It shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The question becomes, Rob, what are you saying? Do I, what ha can, can I lose my salvation? Can, can I wake up one morning and realize, am I really saved? And I, wanna, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I think I want to spend just a few minutes here this morning. There are two sides to that argument. Some people say, yes, you can, you can lose your salvation. If you fail to follow, follow the Lord, that's it. You can lose your salvation. Other people say, nope, once you're saved, you're always saved. doesn't matter what you do. You can do anything, and you're always secure in the Lord. I can argue scripturally both sides of that. As a matter of fact, I used to take joy in doing that. I used to find someone, whatever side you believe, I'll argue the other side. And whatever side, if you believe, if you believe in eternal security, then I'd, ar I'd argue that you could lose your salvation. If you believe you could lose your salvation, I would argue eternal security, and I would use scriptures to do it with. And you can kind of banter back and forth. But here's what I realized. Number one, it's not profitable to argue. Number two, I realized Paul is very secure in his salvation throughout the scriptures. 
Paul is very, very secure as you read. He knows where he's going. He, he says, I have finished the race, and, and what lays before me is eternal glory. He understands where he's going. But he also says right here that we just read, you have to continue. You, have, you, you must, the conditional clause, you, I must continue in his goodness. And here's how I think it works very, very practically. I have the obligation to abide in Christ. If I, maybe you've met somebody who comes to the Lord and they believe on Jesus Christ, they pray the prayer, they walk through life and pretty soon you meet them in a year or two from now and they're so far away from the Lord that you would look at their life and go, are they even really saved? Are they, were they ever really saved becomes the question. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't worry about everybody else. Ask yourself, am I abiding in Christ this morning? If you're abiding in Christ, you can be absolutely sure of your salvation, that you are going to heaven. You do not lose your salvation like you lose your car keys. Like, where, I can't, where did I put them? I can't find them. But if you wake up tomorrow morning and go, you know what, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I believe the Bible's not true. I don't think it, as a matter of fact, I'm going to become atheist and I'm going to start preaching against the gospel. I'm going to take all the knowledge I've learned and I'm going to start spewing it out against, the, against Christ. One of two things either happen there. Either you never were saved, which is quite possible, or you just walked away. You failed to continue in his goodness. You, you, you've rejected. You then become a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit where you're rejecting what Christ has done for you. So, have I confused you all? Good. Can I be secure in my salvation? Absolutely. Can you walk away from your salvation? I don't know. I don't think so. I, don't, I think if you've tasted that the Lord is good, I think you're, you're stuck with him. But is it possible for you to... Walk, there's a lot of people that you look at their lives and you go, it looks like they've walked away. I'm not here to judge them for that. The only one I can look at is me and the only one you can really look at is you. So the question again is, are you abiding in Christ? Do you know for sure that you, you are the one? One commentator said this, he said, this conditional clause of continuing in his goodness is a reminder that there is no security in the bond of the gospel apart from perseverance. There is no such thing as continuance in the favor of God in spite of apostasy. God's saving, embrace, and endurance are correlative. It means they work together. You have to work together. So can you be secure in your salvation? Absolutely. You don't have to worry about it one bit. But if you're off living a life of, 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 of sin, I think I'd really be questioning where I'm headed. Because the Bible is very clear that adulterers, drunkards, and will not enter the, inherit, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, so that, that, I'll leave that on you to determine this morning. But I do believe we can absolutely be secure of our salvation. And you will not lose it like you wake up and lose your car keys and can't find them in the morning. It would be something that if, if in fact you can lose it, it would be some, not something you lose. It would be something you choose to give back that you choose not to accept anymore. Again, speaking of the Jewish people, Paul says in verse 22, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of the fact that we, the Jewish people will be grafted back in someday. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, against this mystery, this thing that which, once, which was once unknown has now become known. That's what the word mystery means in, in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's not something that we don't know. It's something that we didn't know previously, and now we do know. 
But he says this blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Therefore, it's a temporary blindness. It's only to a certain point until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What does that mean? What is the fullness of the Gentiles? There is a lot of speculation as to what it means. I'm going to tell you what I believe it means. It means until the last Gentile person gets saved. The last non-Jewish person believes on Jesus Christ. I believe the church will be raptured at that point. The fullness of Gentiles will be complete. And God will turn his attention back to the nation Israel. It will also be the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. During that tribulation period, Revelation chapter 7 speaks of 144,000 witnesses from the 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. Those will become little Billy Grahams, little evangelists, evangelizing the whole world, those 144,000 people. And out of that 144,000 people will be a great harvest. People coming out of the tribulation will be Jewish and Gentiles who are getting saved as a result of that. When the fullness of the Gentile is complete, when that takes place, when the last non-Jewish person to get saved, whenever God has appointed for that time, when is it, Rob? I don't know. I don't know when that'll be. Well, how soon could it be? it It could be tomorrow. I don't know. It could be tonight. It could be this afternoon. There's no more biblical prophecies left to be fulfilled in the way that I believe in a pre tribulation rapture. It's all there. Well, where's the rapture in, in, in the book of Revelation? It's in Revelation, at the end of Revelation chapter 3 and the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. It's when John's taken up into heaven and never again after that is the church or the Holy Spirit mentioned in the book of Revelation. You say, well, I read Revelation chapter 7. That's where the people around the throne. Those are people coming out of, the ribula- rev- rev- out of the tribulation period. Well, where's the church at? They're represented by the 24 elders that you read about a little bit earlier in Revelation chapter 7. I'll explain that. If, if, if I just confused you, Go back online, listen to my teaching of Revelation chapter 7, and it'll probably make more sense to you if I, if I did confuse you. Understand this. God's not done with the nation of Israel. We don't believe that Israel is replacing the church. We believe that God is going, when he's done with the Gentiles, when that fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God will turn his focus back to Israel, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them will come to Christ during that tribulation period. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. All Israel is referring to those who come to a belief in Jesus Christ by faith as their Messiah. They will be grafted back in. That's what Paul's talking about here. The simple passage refutes those who insist that God is done with Israel. How, how, how do you answer that at this point? Um, verse, uh, going on in verse 26, the deliverer will come out of Zion He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul again is saying he is not done. Oh, what a day it will be when the nation Israel, when the Jewish people actually come to belief in Jesus Christ. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts, of the, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has not changed. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have been disobedient. Just like you were disobedient and got saved, the nation Israel is rejected there once also, that through mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy, for God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all you reserve you and i received mercy when we were disobedient and they're going to receive mercy mercy as well god's plan is at work and it causes paul it brings paul these last couple of verses in the chapter he just worships 
I, I can imagine as he's penning this down, as he's writing, going, this is incredible. This is unbelievable that God's not done with my people. He started out in chapter 9, I die for him. And maybe he's even getting the revelation as he's beginning to write this. I don't know. But as he gets to the end, look what he says. It's just worship. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? It shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. If after reading Romans chapter 11, you still believe that God has forsaken and put the church in the place of Israel, I don't know what to tell you. I, 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 you, you can believe it. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It'll affect the way that you see end times. But I, I, don't know, I don't know how you can read Romans chapter 11 and think, yep, God's done with Israel. I, I, just, I just don't understand it. After reading Romans chapter 11, I come to a couple of conclusions. God's not done with Israel. I am thankful that for the, to the Jewish people. Their stumbling is what brought salvation to us. I'm thankful for the Apostle Paul and putting this on paper for us. How else would we understand it? All of the commentaries, all the knowledge, all we have. Paul is the one that God revealed the mystery to. He wrote it down for us. I also know that God's ways are past finding out. And that I can't take in my, my pea brain of a mind, think that I can somehow explain all of God's ways and explain all of God's sovereignty and explain exactly how all things happen. But what I can do is settle on the fact that I'm going to believe it. I know God is sovereign. I know he's working. And Paul has come to the place here at Romans chapter 11. He has just, he put a period and he laid down his pen. He completed his argument. Remember how he started out? Way back in chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from beginning to end. The just shall live by faith. It's at this point that Paul would dot the page, and I think that's it. That's the argument. He has just proven to us that the gospel is for all people. And he, proved, he laid it out how it's all going to work. And you go, wait a minute, Rob, there's more chapters. There's more chapters in Romans. He's not done. He wrote more. I know, which is even going to get better. But here's the thing. If over the last three weeks you've grown a little bit weary of Israel and all the talk about the Jewish people and you kind of think, oh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of application in that to me. There really is, but if, if you've kind of missed it, the remaining five chapters are going to be all about you. It's going to be all about you, all about how you're supposed to, you know, you go, well, that's pretty cool. I'm not leaving here pretty convicted. Wait till next week. Wait till we get through chapter 12. We'll spend a couple weeks in chapter 12 and, and wait, wait, wait to see what's coming. Now Paul's going to tell us how we should be living the Christian life and what it should look like as we proceed into chapter 12 next week. Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity. Lord, forgive us when we don't fully study and for the things that we don't fully understand, but Lord, our heart is to know the truth, your truths. Lord, would you just continue to shape us and mold us and speak to us. And take the truths of your word and, and help us to understand them in our minds. Lord, may we not get caught up with what popular culture or things like that believe, Lord. May, may we not even get caught up, caught up with what commentators say. Lord, may you be the one that's giving us understanding as we read and study and we look at the different things. And Father, as Paul illustrated today, grace. 
Grace is what it's all about. It's a free gift from you to us. And that grace is unbelievably amazing. It is the very thing that will motivate us to want to live for you, not the other way around. May we keep our priorities straight. May we seek first the kingdom of God. Let all other things be added to us. May we come in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.